So uh, many of you know some of this story if you've been around the church for any amount of time. Um, and it's my story, and I'm about to share it up, upstairs for lunch with, with some of the newer folks in our church. But I came to know Jesus in a real way, in a personal way, sometime in the mid-80s. Uh, it was either in 1985 or 1986. People would say to me, how do you not know this was such a foundational thing in your life? The reason I don't know it is because I didn't know it was going to be such a foundational thing in my life at the time. Uh, I had no idea I was going to wind up pastoring a church and, and that Jesus was going to change my life. But I met him um, on Christmas Eve at the Roxbury Diner. My brother-in-law had taken me out there alone, my wife and his, his wife, and he explained to me the gospel. And I had heard it a million times. In fact, if I'm honest with you, it had become cliche. And that's why we as believers need to avoid cliches sometimes. I knew Jesus loved me. I had sang it when I was a little boy. And I knew that Jesus died for my sins. But I didn't really know what any of that actually meant. It hadn't really pierced into me until my brother-in-law explained it to me that day at the, at the Roxbury Diner. And it was like somebody flipped a switch. Some of you had that experience where it's just like, woof, I get it now. I understand this. And so I had this deep passion, this deep desire to follow after Jesus in, in a real way. So, you know, I was joining something new in a sense. I was becoming a Christian. Anytime you join something new, if you're very honest, when you join anything new, there's one question which you kind of, uh, you, you often ask, sometimes it's just laid out for you. Think about it. If, it, if it's a, a, a book club, a political affiliation, um, a country club, the first thing that's explained or the first question you ask is, what are the rules? Like, what is it, you know, I'm part of this. What are the rules now that I have to uphold to, to be part of this, this, new this new club, this new belief system? Now, these rules, as they were introduced to me, um, some of them were spoken, some of them were unspoken. But these rules, as they were introduced to me about the Christian life, about following Jesus, seemed to consist of a couple of do's. You should, you should pray. You should go to church. There was a couple of do's in there. But there was a lot and a lot and a lot of don'ts. Don't watch bad TV shows anymore. Don't go to R-rated movies. Don't listen to secular music anymore. That's bad. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't curse. Don't have sex. Don't dress provocatively. Don't hang around with the wrong crowd. And I built up this whole list of things that now that I was part of this new club, I could no longer do, that I had to kind of put off and put over here because that was part of the old club. And while I was not any crazy party kid by any means, I was 18 years old and a sophomore at Rutgers University. And if I'm very honest with you, all of the rules that they were telling me the things that I couldn't do were all of the things that I couldn't wait to do when I got to Rutgers University. And so I, I found myself kind of like, well, I, I, I believe in God. I want to pursue God. But yeah, I, I, I can't seem to live up to all of these things. And uh, there's all these rules and regulations. And I started to wonder, well, maybe God just doesn't want me to have fun. Maybe this was the wrong time to, to come to God. Because clearly, like right now, I, I you know, I remember thinking to myself, what a horrible time. This is like a cruel joke coming to God in college because it's going to ruin all of my fun. And, and that's what God had become. In fact, that's what he was introduced to me as, is this rule giver. And if you lived up to the rules, then God liked you. And, and if you didn't, you had to be kind of careful because, yes, Jesus had died for you, but, you know, rules are rules. And this led me at one point in, in, in my sophomore year uh, on the on of Hardenburg Hall in the River Dorms, uh, you know, at a party and having fun. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't a bad kid or anything, but I got these the internal warring, competing f factions in my heart. And at one point, I left the party and I went into the stairwell in the fire escape 
And I sat down, I started crying. I still remember, I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting in the fire escape crying. And going, I don't, like, I want to follow you, but I don't get it. Like, you seem really hell-bent on me not having any fun, and I can't live up to all these rules. Like, I want to be a better, better person, but I keep breaking all of these things. And the truth is that these rules that had been put on me, I wasn't just breaking them. The truth is they were breaking me. And that was my experience. Now, I don't know if it's been your experience, but I think it is the experience of many, especially those outside of the walls of church, who look at Christianity and say, thanks, but no thanks. When we somehow communicate to people that following Jesus is all about obeying rules. Now, can I share with you how we're doing this right now? I mean, man, we mess this up all the time. I, may I be honest? I have a certain guilty pleasure I'm going to share with you. And I'm confident enough in my sexuality to tell you about it. On Monday nights, often I watch Monday Night Football. But if the game slows down a little bit, I will flip the channel to my other semi-obsession, Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> now, I know the reaction is two things. Number one, what kind of woman are you? <laughs> or number two, you're a Christian, you shouldn't watch that show, right? There's a little element there of that. I know that, I know that that's out there, okay? And so with Dancing with the Stars over the last two years, what's been fascinating to me, if you watch it, right, there's been two kind of like Christian superstars, which kind of says something about Christian stars. The Christian superstars that have been on Dancing with the Stars, last year it was um, the, the girl from Growing Pains, right? Um, uh, Candace Cameron Bure. And this year, it is uh, the daughter of one of the Robertsons from Duck Dynasty, right? And if you've, if you've paid any attention to pop culture at all, what you keep seeing coming up with these two Christians that are out there is they keep talking about their Christianity, and the only way, the only reason their faith ever comes up is related to what? Does anybody know what they're always concerned about? What they're going to dress like. That's the message that we've communicated to the world. That at the end of the day, if we're given 30 seconds of prominence on TV, we need to make sure that you know that your dress better come down below your knees. And I watch it and I'm like, you're falling into a giant trap. All you've done is communicate. Instead of kind of standing up and saying, if they asked you about your dress, saying, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I dress like. My faith tells me I can dress however the heck I want. I'm free in Christ. I'm accepted by God. He has unconditional love for me. Instead of speaking of his kindness, which is what the scripture says, will draw us into faith. Somehow we fall into the trap of speaking of his laws. And we, we paint a picture for society. Here's this God with all of these commands, and he's just sitting there with the big stick, and he's just waiting for his people to step out of line. Now, please hear me. I'm not an advocate for provocative dress. I, I, I used to go down to the high school track and jog in the morning, and as the kids were coming to school, I would watch the girls walk in. I'm sure boys dress provocatively, but I, you know, <laughs> I don't notice that. But the girls are walking in, and I'm going, I don't know how these 17-year-old boys can handle this. I've got two daughters. My daughters will tell you, daddy does not like, like there is a little rule in our house that no, nothing gets printed on anybody's behind, 
right? You know how like every, that was the thing a few years ago, right? Like every, everything had the name on the butt, and I'm going, my, my daughters don't walk around with anything on their behinds. So this is not an, an advocacy for, pro, uh, for provocative clothing. This is an advocacy for us as Christians to understand the law of God and what it means and how we keep miscommunicating it both to ourselves and to the culture outside. So we're looking today... We're basing our discussions over these couple weeks on hard questions that come out of Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, and some of the work John Ortberg has done on, on, on analyzing it. And so here's today's common objection to our faith, based on all that I've just told you. It's this. Who are you to tell me what to do? I mean, in a culture of tolerance and acceptance, in a country founded on this bedrock principle of individual freedoms for all, how can you, John, how can you say you claim to have absolute truth? How can you, Christians, even though you're only 30% of the world, how can you claim moral superiority over everybody else's choices? I mean, what you're proposing is is an absolute, one-size-fits-all truth that's objectively true for everyone. And it's completely subversive to individual and communal freedom. And frankly, if people follow this out and really believe it, it could be quite dangerous. Why would I want to obey all of these commands when all they seem to want to do is kill off my fun, limit my freedom, and not even allow me to have an open mind? And if we're honest, those are pretty good questions. So in order to try to understand rules and laws and and our faith, We need to go back to where they were given. We need to kind of go back in time, and we need to re-enter the story of the Ten Commandments. Because God gave these commandments in the context of a story. These laws are in the context of a story. Now, context is so important when you study the Scripture. When it comes to reading and understanding the Bible, it's so critical. History is littered with cults and genocides because they pulled scriptural pieces out of their context. John and I went to the movies this week. I can't tell you which one it is because you'll judge me. But um, we went to the movies. And, you know, you often go to these movies and you'll see all these great reviews in the movie. And you walk in and you're all fired up because you had seen these posters that said all these great things. And when you walk out, you're like, I'm never getting those two hours back. Like, that was horrible. You know, I can't believe I just paid 40 bucks for this. And, and you're going, but they said all the reviews were great. Context. Hollywood figured something out a while ago. Its marketing machine came up with something called contextimizing. For example, let me give you two examples of this, which I found are great. United Artists contextimized critic Kenneth Tulane's review of their flop movie, Hoodlum. They took one word out of his review, irresistible, and they put it all over their advertising campaigns for this movie. This movie is irresistible, so says Kenneth Turan. However, his actual review said this, quote, Even Lawrence Fishburne's incendiary performance can't ignite Hoodlum, a would-be gangster epic that generates less heat than even a nickel cigar. Fishburne's Fishburne's character, Bumpy, is fierce, magnetic, magnetic, irresistible even. But even this actor can only do so much. And the poster says, irresistible. In 2010, Vanity Fair reported that we're the victims of reckless blurbing for the television show Lost. Many of us have seen Lost, right? Mike Ryan had written that the show was, quote, the most confusing, the most asinine, the most ridiculous, yet somehow addictively awesome television show of all time. 
Naturally, the blurb hunters at ABC came up with, quote, the most addictively awesome television show of all time. And so that's funny when we do it with things like movies, but it's not funny when we do it with things from God. And that's what we've done with the Ten Commandments. We've pulled them out of the story. We've pulled them out of the narrative history of a God looking to bring life to his people, looking, chasing after them, pursuing them, trying to redeem them. We've pulled them out of that story. We've chiseled them into stone, and we've set them up in front of courthouses. And, and oftentimes, as Christians, we're banging on a courthouse saying, don't remove the Ten Commandments. What I'd submit to you is the Ten Commandments outside of the context of when we, in which they were given conjure up a really bad image of God and really not who he is. So let's go back to the story. We're going to enter it in Exodus chapter 19. God comes and he speaks to Moses and he says, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. Listen to God's language as he's about to give these commands. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I bought you to myself. This is a story of a people in slavery, in bondage to Egypt, that were giving their lives away, tortured and oppressed, making brick after brick after brick. And God comes to them and he says, I'm going to take you out of slavery and into freedom. If you remember last week in our discussion, we talked about when, when the question, is Jesus the only way? Jesus, God is always saying, I'm giving you the free choice. You can choose separation from me, but it will bring you death. Or you can choose to be with me and I am the source of life. God is always saying throughout all of scripture, choose death or life but make a choice. In this story, God, and through all of Scripture, says there's two things that my people need to choose between. They can be enslaved or they can choose freedom. And this is a story about that choice. God goes on, Moses, tell my people, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, we'll talk about that in a minute, then out of all the nations, out of all the other nations on the face of the earth, you're going to be my treasured possession. When we did the marriage series, I told you this once before, Joan and I were home, we were talking about these things that we were learning in that marriage series, and one night she said to me, all I really want to know is that I'm the most important person in the world to you. All I really want to know is I'm your treasured possession. Here's God saying to his people, out of all, out of all the other nations on earth, you're going to be my treasured possession. And he goes on and he gives them an identity. He says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation. He doesn't say, you're going to be my slaves now. I'm going to be your new ruler now. He doesn't say, you're going to need to tiptoe around me. You're going to need to be afraid that you might screw up. He says, no, no, come to me. You will be my people and I'll be your God. See, the Ten Commandments were never meant to be a list of standalone rules. They came within a relational context. In fact, in Judaism, the real translation of Ten Commandments is not Ten Commandments. Uh, I don't know Hebrew enough to say this correctly, so I'm not going to even attempt it. But if Ten Commandments w would be different Hebrew words than the words that are actually constructed. They, don't, they are not called by the Jews the Ten Commandments. Um, they were called the Ten Statements because they were rooted in the way things are. They were rooted in who you are, how you were designed to be. They were a statement about yourself. 
They had to do with how you were wired by God, how, how you would relate to him, how you should and could live out the way you were created within, within a context of love and purpose and identity with God. And so in the story, Moses leads the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stand at the foot of this mountain. And they stand because what else can you do in, in, out of reverence to God? You know, I heard this week in all of the scriptures, this is the only story where God doesn't come to a person where God comes to a people. It's interesting because half of the, 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 the law has to do with how we treat one another. But let's enter the story. So I'm going to ask, let's go to Mount Sinai together. Let me ask you to get up and stand up. And let's read these together, okay? Commandment one, saying one, I am the Lord your God who bought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, it begins with a statement. I am God. Think about our first fall in the garden, right? You, you, we were tempted. Would you, you, you like to be like God? You can just eat this and you'll be like God. And God comes to his people and he says, in this relationship, I need you to understand something. I am God, you're not. Slide two. You shall not make for yourself an idol. For I am a jealous God. Wow, what God tells his people he's jealous over them. Slide number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. John Wartburg does a fascinating thing. I had never noticed this before, that if you look at the first two commandments, they're actually direct, directly spoken by God. They're in the first person. But when you get to the third statement, right, suddenly it changes and it's in a third person. And in the story, there's a time in the story that the Bible recounts that the people said to Moses, we have to keep God at a distance. And they said, Moses, keep God at a distance. You speak to us yourself and we'll listen to you. But don't have God speak to us because it's too overwhelming. And what the rabbinic literature taught was it happened between the second and third commandment. God was too great for his people. And they, they were overwhelmed and they started saying, Moses, you tell us the laws. Fourth one. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God knows what you need. Slide five. Honor your father and mother. Can I get a witness? Number six. You shall not murder. In fact, Jesus goes on to talk about forgiveness. Number seven. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus will go on to say that this speaks to of lust and sexual impurity. Number eight. You shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness. Man, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be a community of liars. Nothing's going to erode relationships like, like a level of distrust like that. Number 10, number 10's fascinating too because it's the only one that has to do with our heart. It doesn't have to do with an outward thing. Number 10, together, you shall not covet. The 10 commandments, the 10 sayings of God. Take a seat. And so here you have God leading this people out of slavery. And immediately then he comes to them and he does something which seems kind of incongruent because he says to them, here is a new set in a sense of, of, of laws. It, it, could it be said that he's essentially just trading in slave masters? He used to have to listen to the Egyptians, but now you're going to, to listen to me. That's a good question. Right? Because in other words, is Israel still not able to do what it really wants to do? 
I mean, in our world today, right, nobody wants to do what somebody else tells them to do. I can tell you, I do, I do weddings, and when I sit down with brides and grooms, and I say, what kind of vows would you like? Would you like the traditional vows? Yes, I would like the traditional vows, except for one. Right? Because nobody is going to tell me what to do. I need to be free. Yet, when I'm not doing funerals and weddings, I have begun to do a lot of counseling. And let me introduce you to a concept related to freedom and its exercise. This is really interesting, and it's important because it's foundational to what God was trying to do there. There are times in our lives, especially as it relates to these sayings that God gave us, these things that God says are true of us, there seems to be another law at work, a competing law at work in me, in our desire to exercise freedom. For example, when I was at Rutgers, I wanted to drink. We made punch out of everything conceivable that you could make a punch out of. And Thursday was parties, and Friday was parties, and Saturday was parties, and Sunday was parties, and then you would study on Monday to Thursday, but then Thursday you'd start to party again. And, and I wanted to, I, you know, I'm, I'm crying in the stairwell. I want to be free to drink. And my friends were right there with me, but something happened over the years, especially to some of my friends. You see, initially, they really wanted the freedom to drink. But then something started to switch on them. And it started impacting their ability to perform at Rutgers. And then some of them didn't seem like that interested in getting jobs. And some of them started doing some really strange things. And, and you know, some of them it was impacting their lives at deeper levels. And, and some of you have had this experience, right? I want to be free to, to drink or do whatever, but suddenly it's impacting my wife and my kids, and I think I should stop. I'm going to stop. I can't stop. I'm free to stop, but I can't stop. There's another law at work. Something has enslaved me. I exercised my freedom, but the choice that I made somehow enslaved me. There's something, there's a brokenness in me. Freedom, see, my freedom and your freedom isn't only constricted by external restraints, but our freedom, there's something inside us that keeps us from being free. I am free to look at women on the internet as long as I want. Yeah, I'm going to stop wasting my whole day looking at this stuff. But I can't stop. Somehow, I don't know what happened. I, I wanted to be free, and I thought I was free, but somehow something's a brokenness. I'm free to radically let go of the hurt and the pain that others have caused me. It's killing me inside. I've got to let the, it go. I've got to forgive them. But I can't. I met with a friend this week, and he had something so horribly done to him by some people, and every time I meet him, as a guy that knows Christ at deep levels. Every time I meet with him... It, he, he says, I, I want to forgive, but I can't let it go. It's killing me. One speaker said this. There's two kinds of freedom. One is the freedom to drink or to smoke. It's, it's the freedom from the laws restricting things. But he says there's a greater freedom. 
And that's the freedom to actually become what you were created to be, to live up to your full potential. It's the greater, it's the deeper freedom, right? Paul is in prison. His external freedom is limited. But internally, he says, I've never been more content in my life. If you want to see this played out, all of us probably at this point know somebody, know a parent that has a child that is horribly addicted to drugs, right? If you go to that parent and you say to them, if you could choose that your child be put in prison or stay in the slave to this, to this chemical abuse, what would you choose? Every one of them says. I've had parents say to me, I just hope he gets caught. Because it's a much sadder thing to be enslaved internally than to be enslaved externally. This is why if you think about what's been the most uh, successful system in terms of helping overcome addictions and sin, it's these 12-step programs, right? And if you've been around them, they provided freedom for millions of people. And what do they start with? They start by saying, I admit that my willpower is insignificant to handle what has become of me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm turning my freedom back over to a God. Because my freedom, I'm no longer free. And what they found over, over the years that this program has been in place is, as you give up your freedom, do you know what you become? fascinating stuff. This is why the scripture, whenever it speaks of God's law, often accompanies it with the term freedom. Psalm 119, I always obey your law forever and ever. I walk about in slavery, in freedom, because I sought out your precepts. James 125, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they're going to be blessed. It's always true. The scripture is always conversed to what we would naturally think. Somehow, when I wind up doing whatever it is the heck I want to do, I wind up in slavery. But when I give my freedom back to God, I wind up truly free. This truth has so many deep applications in our lives. If you would give up your freedom, you might love your wife a little bit better. If you would give up your freedom, you might be able to have a little more, a little more tolerance with your kids. I heard a study 20 years ago, and I looked it up this week. I, I've heard this study 20 years ago on a Focus on the Family episode with, with James Dobson, maybe more than 25 years ago, and it, it stuck with me. So I looked it up in preparation for this lesson, and understanding freedom and boundaries and how you gain freedom when, when, when you, you act the way you were created to act. So they did an experiment. They took children, and they put them on playgrounds. If you look out there, you'll see we have a playground. It's a beautiful playground, and around it is a fence. And people started saying, we can't fence in our children and treat them like animals. Our children need to be able to run free. So they went around and they pulled the fences down around these playgrounds. And they started comparing because they wanted to see what the children's reactions would be. What happens to kids who play in a playground that, that's got a fence around it? And what happens to children who play in a playground that has no fence? This is a secular study. Check out the conclusion. The overwhelming conclusion was that with a given limitation, children felt safer to explore a playground. Without offense, the children weren't able to see a given boundary or a limit and thus were more reluctant to leave their caregiver. caregiver. With the boundary, in this case, the fence, the children felt at ease to explore the space. They were able to separate from their caregiver and continue to develop in their sense of self while still recognizing they were in a safe environment within the limits of the fence. 
The picture of this is they took the fence down and instead of the children roaming free, they huddled around their caregiver. When the fence went back up, the children were able to walk free. It's inverse than you would think, but there are freedoms found in fences. What we find is this. There are moral absolutes. God is not some God of ambiguous whims and fancies wanting control and punishment. Instead, these so-called commandments, they're statements about our very nature. They're statements about how you were designed to work. If you will but follow them, you will be free. Christopher Hitchens wrote a book a couple years ago entitled, God is Not Great. And he said if the Bible were true, it would be a disaster because it would be like living eternally under a divine totalitarian despot. It'd be like living in a celestial North Korea, but worse, because at least you can die to get out of North Korea. And this is, this is what we get for telling people that we got to, you know, that, that somehow God's biggest fancy is how long your dress is on Dancing with the Stars. I think that sometimes when God is seen as an authoritative figure whose purpose is just to limit fun and freedom, whose followers license themselves as the moral policemen of the world, that sometimes this is how we convey God. But that is not who God is. That's not the story of the commandments. If you remember, at the time uh, these were initially given, God said, this is going to be my covenant between you and I. A covenant is a means of establishing a relationship based on, based on faithfulness to a vow. And what's happening at Mount Sinai is God is making a covenant. God is making a covenant with people. It's insane. No other God comes and binds himself to people. Now, let me show you a little visual of this. We were actually able to go back uh, to Mount Sinai. Let me show you how this came down. Darren, hopefully you can get this to run this service. Last time we had a little, little trouble with it. Moses went to the mountain and God spoke unto him. Moses, this is the Lord thy God commanding you to obey my law. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you, I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. What? Nothing, I punished you, forget it. Oh, Lord, why have you chosen me? What would you have me do for you? I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord! <laughs> Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me! Oh, hear me. All pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15. <laughs> ten, ten commandments for all to obey. Anybody know that movie or am I dating myself with that? <laughs> See, the scripture says that they, that they were given unto us on two tablets, right? And so most of us have been taught, and even in the movie, it's kind of made a joke, right? You got five on each tablet. But what biblical scholars are actually saying is that the root of a covenant, any covenant that was made in the ancient world was given two copies because you had two parties entering into the covenant. So likely what God did was he made a copy for Israel so they would understand the covenant that had been entered, and he made a copy for himself. Because he had binded himself to these people and he wanted to be reminded of it. And he tells Israel, go and put this in the Ark of the Covenant because I'm going to be with you. 
Many of you are familiar with a covenant. Many of you made one. You stood up in front of the church at some time in your life, maybe in front of some friends. You spoke the promises of a covenant to another, right? For richer, for poorer. Just think about lying out the covenant, right? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, till death do us part. We put together our promises that would rule our relationship in a covenant. And you had the best intentions and you did it willingly because you were committing one to another, your entire lives, your entire being, your bodies, your futures, and it was all going to be based on this agreement that we had made with each other, and I did it because I was getting you out of it. Now, with that in mind, think of the covenant God makes with his people at the foot of the mountain. It's pretty clear what the people are getting. They're getting a personal relationship with a God. They're getting an identity as God's people. They're going to be his treasured possession. Out of all the people on earth, they'll be his holy nation. But have you ever asked yourself this? What did God get out of the covenant? What did God get? I mean, have you read your Bible? Do you know what happens with these people? What does he get out of the covenant he, he, he longs to keep with you? It seems like the Ten Commandments aren't just any covenant, though. The truth is they're actually much like the covenant that you, many of you, made when you stood at an altar, or in a sense, before a mountain. It turns out... In this story, in Exodus, as God is taking his people out of Egypt, as he's taking them out of slavery and trying to get them to freedom, he makes to this nation four promises. He says, I'm going to take you out, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to redeem you, and I will take you to me. These are the four cups that are the promises of the four cups in a Passover meal. And they're the promises that that Jewish grooms make to a Jewish bride. And these were the promises that God was making to his people. This is why he tells Moses, if they would agree to this, if they would agree to this covenant, they, they will be my, my beloved, my treasured possession. One writer describes what happens next in this story. He says, the Ten Commandments are often seen as harsh rules of a God who's looking for ways to judge and control people. Just follow the rules and no one will get hurt. As if the best that God could come up with was a, a list of things people shouldn't do. Often religion with its understanding of God has very little to say to people beyond don't do this and don't do that. But the Ten Commandments are something else. In a Jewish wedding ceremony, a legal document called a ketubah must be agreed upon and signed by both parties. And it's essentially a list of what they're entering into. Both the bride and the groom have to be clear with each other on what they're committing to, what they're affirming it will take for the relationship to work. The Ten Commandments were God's ketubah in his desired marital relationship between you and him. They're the agreement upon which the relationship works. They're the agreement between God and his people, how they're going to live together, their wedding vows, which is why the first one says, don't cheat on me. You're not to have anybody else but me. See, I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for you. For the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, you find God referring back to the ketubah, to the original vows. In the book of Hosea, God says to his people, you cheated on me. The whole book's a picture of how God's people have been unfaithful. In one text, God laments, you were the bride of my youth. See, it was supposed to be a beautiful thing, but the people hadn't been faithful. They broke in God's heart. We broke God's heart. So what did God get with the covenant? He got a people to love. He got a people to bless. He got a wayward, stiff-necked, rebellious people to marry and to call his own. That's what he calls you. 
his own. God, get this, God, who is God, who needs not enter into a covenant with anyone. This God unbelievably chooses to bind himself in a covenant to you. The Jewish writers couldn't believe it. That's why 285 times in the Old Testament they kept referring to him as the God of the covenant. What other God does this? So as the band comes up, Here's what I want you to see about these two tough questions and the way we've answered them traditionally and how it's messed things up for us and for those outside of our church. Last week when we talked about the question, is Jesus really the only way? It's not, the answer is not often the way that his followers have presented to him. God is not some narcissist in heaven who says you better choose me or you're dead. It's a God that instead says there's only one way to life. I am life. Come to me and live. It's not a God who says you better pick this religion over those religions. It's a God who says there is nobody else that's coming for you. As we look at these commands, God is not some totalitarian despot taking and demanding that man obey just some frivolous rules. He's He's a God that although he does not need to, he's a God that chose to lock and bind himself in a covenant of marriage to a wayward people. To Rena and John and Greg, Chris. A God that gives to his people not commands, but ways to freedom and to life. The Bible says that if the Son has set you free, you are truly free. But just as last week, in terms of death and life, in terms of slavery and freedom, God says to each of you, it's your decision. Will you choose life? Will you accept my proposal? Will you choose me? Lord, from a a thick-skinned, thick-necked, rebellious people, we acknowledge our misunderstandings. We acknowledge our misrepresentations. And we know we need to decide this day whom we shall serve.